On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with the founder and executive director of the Bible Translation Fellowship, our friend Kyle, about Bible translation. So we cover topics like what is Bible translation? Why does it matter? What is the need? How should churches and individual uh, members of churches be involved in Bible translation? What are the most challenging aspects to it? Is Bible translation ultimately for the church or is it for evangelism? Well, what does that look like? And many more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we think about all different types of topics. But as we think, we want to exemplify and promote particular virtues. Uh, so in doing that, those the four that we try to focus on are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Um, and we hope that those types of virtues create an intellectual culture for those who listen, and for us even, to just develop these types of virtues in our own conversations with our with our neighbors, with our friends, with, with our, our theological friends and theological opponents. And I think that it will help us to grow as uh, good Christian thinkers. And we are Baptists, me and Brandon. Uh, we don't always have Baptists on the show, but we the reason that the the biggest reason we want to promote Baptist stuff is just because we think there's a lack overall among Baptists for thinking. So we try to bring on all sorts of various topics. And I think this topic that we're going to talk about today is really interesting. And I think probably our Baptist listeners are probably more uh, aware of this than maybe some other segments. I'm not really sure. I think uh, we're going to talk about Bible translation with, with Kyle Davis. And I think Bible translation Maybe I don't. I mean, maybe I'm just totally making this up. But it seems like Baptists, at least from my context, the different seminaries that I've been in, that's something that people are interested in. They see the value in, um, and it's. I don't know. I guess maybe it's just the evangelical ethos that's like people are like, yes, we need a Bible translate. We need to go to the nations. We need to do these things. Um, but I think we're going to talk about a lot of the stuff that goes on with the Second London Confession uh, that talks about translation a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit deeper than just simply like, how do you translate this word? Is it wooden or is it not wooden? Uh, So I'm excited. I think this is gonna be fun. Kyle, before we jump into all this going on, I imagine a good chunk of our listeners don't know who you are. So give us a little bit of background about yourself and then maybe tell us a little bit of your journey of how you got into Bible translation and how this became something you were interested in. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. My name is Kyle, and I serve as the executive director of Bible Translation Fellowship. And uh, in terms of my journey, I came to faith in my early teens. So I'm pushing 44 this year, a little over 30 years ago. And the scriptures were so influential in terms of my conversion, reading scriptures like Ecclesiastes and learning the vanity of life and life without God and and obeying God's commands. And all of these things were so influential in my coming to faith. But then as, an er, as coming from a non-Christian background um, and, and trying to learn what does it mean to be a Christian, a, a godly man, uh, if the Lord would give me a wife, what does it mean to be a husband, a father? And so the scriptures were just the place that I had to go to form the answers to these questions. And so scripture was very influential in my, uh, all along the way 
at a certain point in my later teens, I had a lot of friends that were into various forms of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. So I had a lot of other folks saying, you know, this is how you know God's will. This is how you hear from God, uh, which was very different than what I was understanding the scriptures to, to say in terms of hearing the voice of God, discerning his will, things like that. So there was some very instrumental passages of scripture um, that, that formed my thinking about discerning God's will, about knowing what God wants for my life and things like that. But also at an early age, I started reading missionary biographies and just learning from Christians of ages past and seeing the God's heart for the nation, seeing passages like Romans 10 and Romans 15 and 16, and just the movement of the gospel to every language and tribe and people and nation. That all was beginning elements that started to form my journey towards Bible translation, which I wouldn't have known at the time. I studied philosophy as an undergrad and organizational leadership, but was very interested in missions and began thinking and praying about how I might be able to serve the Lord in another country. And so after a bachelor's degree, I spent seven months traveling about 25 countries in Central and South America, Europe and Africa, just visiting missionaries and trying to both discern what my gifts were and learn all the different kinds of roles there are in missions and what might be my way to participate. So I came out of that trip really just with holding to the Great Commission of Matthew 28, thinking if I'm going to disciple others to obey all that God has commanded, I need to really know scripture to be able to disciple others from scripture. So then, then that started my Uh, more formal theological training in biblical counseling, biblical languages, theology, linguistics, Bible translation, uh, which led to a number of different degrees in each of those fields. Uh, And and so, Lord willing, just now this year at at 44, uh, my wife and I hope to move to South Africa and be serving as a translation consultant and then also leading Bible Translation Fellowship. Hmm. So as you mentioned, you know, you're you're the— director of Bible Translation Fellowship. And I was looking before we started recording, I was checking out the the website and that's for the listeners, that's Bible Translation Fellowship. Bible Translation Fellowship dot org. Yep. There and and there's uh there's there's a lot of stuff on here from, you know, the vision and the history and the focus and and the board members and there's a number of different resources, reading lists and stuff. But I wanted to give you just a few minutes before we get more into um, a discussion about Bible translation itself. Tell us about um, Bible Translation Fellowship. You know when, when it was founded, and maybe any areas that you you know want to particularly highlight about you know what you guys are doing there. Sure, great, thank you. Bible Translation Fellowship exists to integrate Bible translation with the mission of the church. So, what do I mean by mission of the church? I mean the Great Commission task, which involves requires evangelism that leads to discipleship which then gets played out in the book of Acts as gathering those disciples into local churches and then establishing establishing them according to biblical polity, biblical principles. So I think uh, Gilbert and DeYoung captured this very well. And what is the mission of the church? So that's what we mean by mission of the church. You know, Paul's first journey was primarily evangelism. Second journey, let's go back and see how the brothers are. Acts 16 to 18 and, and strengthen the brothers, establish the churches. Then you get into Acts 20, you know, he's They're seeing elders established. So that's what we mean by the mission of the church. So the end goal for us at BTF is not a scripture product, the Bible translated and then orally recorded. The end goal is a healthy church 
that uses the scriptures and especially in its public gatherings. So the regular principle of worship, which we have in the Reformed tradition to read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, and even see the word in the ordinances, that, that's the end goal, a healthy church using scripture. So we can get more into that in terms of who is the, then the intended audience. Is Bible translation for evangelism or is it for the church? We, I'd love to talk more about that. But in terms of just high level, BTF exists to integrate Bible translation into that mission, the mission of the church. And so then let me just capture that in, in four different ways. Uh, sort of historically, how did BTF grow? Because you're asking, when did it start? So from 2010 to 2012, I was doing an MA in Bible translation at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And during my time there, I just started asking professors if I could speak to students who were in some of the higher level Greek and Hebrew courses, you know, five minutes just to educate fellow students to think about Bible translation and missions. You know, some of these students were thinking, you know, maybe pastoral ministry is not for me. Maybe I should be thinking about academic ministry, being a, a Hebrew or Greek professor, a theology professor. Okay, great. Could you do that overseas in Nigeria or Ethiopia or many different places? And while being a professor, not only are you now training locals in theology, in linguistics, in biblical languages, who can then translate scripture, but you yourself can also serve part-time as what's called an exegetical advisor a translation consultant. And so a big part of how BTF started sort of unofficially in those years, 2010, 2012, was just pure advocacy, trying to educate Christians about Bible translation needs and roles on Bible translation teams. Instead of sort of the paradigm where people think, you know, Jim Elliott, move to the jungle full time, translate the Bible, learn the language, takes two decades, trying to just educate I know a survey was done in 2015 indicating that 72% of Americans think the Bible already exists in every language of the world. So the, there, there's just a huge gap between understanding there's 7,360 languages in the world and only about 706 have a full copy of God's word. So we're talking less than 10% of the languages have a full translation of scripture. So there's just a lot of education. So that's how BTF started, advocacy, education, speaking to, speaking to pastors, speaking to churches, speaking to, to fellow students at seminary. And then that grew into recruiting. You know, you tell God's people there's a need. They start praying. They start thinking. They start asking questions. Well, how can I get involved? And so I found myself recruiting, not for any one agency, but just into the work. How do we get you plugged in as a exegetical advisor, a translation consultant, or recruiting at a more basic level? What kind of education do I need? Um, where do I go to school to get that education? And then recruiting pushed us into networking. This was right on the heels of the divine, what's called the divine familial terminology debate, the, the whole son of God controversy in Muslim contexts. A petition went out in Christianity Today, I think it was like 2008 or around there. So there was a lot of Christians asking the question, should I support this translation agency or that agency? Because they are not translating Quios, the Greek word for son, as son when it comes to Jesus Christ. And so in Muslim context. And so a lot of evangelical Christians had concerns about that. And so the, where that plays in for us is we, we started trying to network to find, look, we know there's solid, good Bible translators across all these different kinds of agencies and ministries. How do we find them and then network them together, get students who are thinking about it, 
on exposure trips, seeing Bible translation in process, get, getting a feel for it before they commit to a long journey of education and all that. So I've covered advocacy, recruiting, networking, and we've now launched the Bible Translation Network. It's just bibletranslation.network as a means of trying to network folks together for church planting, theological education, and Bible translation. And then the fourth thing we do is consulting. So actual translation consulting, I'm a consultant in training. Once I get recognized as a translation consultant, I'll be able to offer that service to Bible translation teams. The other thing we mean by consulting is we, rather than recruiting an individual who's interested in Bible translation as a vocation, we love to recruit pastors and to walk with them and help them to write Bible translation into their mission's philosophy and strategy and budget. So very practically, if if you're going to have Bible translation as one of the things that your church supports, how do you get there if you don't currently do that? How do you pray publicly for it? How do you include that call and vision in your sermon applications? And all the myriad of ways of casting that vision as a pastor to your congregation for young people to think about giving their lives to this, Uh, It takes a ton of education, uh, people to be good senders and supporters, people to think about going, giving their lives to it. So all those levels, we really want to recruit pastors so that churches are engaged in this. Whole churches are engaged in seeing God's word translated and then used in the lives and ministries of local churches globally. So that's the four things that we do, advocacy, recruiting, networking, and consulting, all with that eye of integrating Bible translation into the mission of the church. That is awesome. I I think uh, most people probably when they hear Bible translation don't realize all of the complexities that you're talking about here that are going into it. I think this is uh, that was that was awesome, uh, especially your emphasis on the local church, because it seems to me, you know, I went to undergrad at a school that shouldn't be named, but I went to Liberty University, and. I think the the emphasis on Bible translation was really the Jim Elliott model, where it's completely divorced from the local church. It's just you go to this unreached people group and you spend 20 years and you translate the Bible, and that's literally all you do. You don't actually help build healthy churches. You don't put this as a primary means of public worship. Those weren't aspects that people talked about or thought about. So this is, I think, fascinating. You mentioned... Yeah, praise the Lord. I think uh, just one comment on Jim Elliott. I, I didn't mean him in a negative way. In, yeah, in no, the sense yeah, I hear you. I think there are, there are people like Jim Elliott who are very gifted as... A, I think he was, he was an evangelist. You do have what I like to call pastor translators. We're really passionate about trying to recruit and, and send out pastor translators. And what I mean by that is sort of like the Carson Piper, you know, pastor scholar, pastor theologian. Yes, but during the Reformation, you also had those pastor scholar theologians who were also Bible translators. And so I think Jim Elliott was that kind of guy who was passionate about evangelism and discipleship. He wanted to see a healthy church. So, you know, he might not be the best guy for us to pick on because he kind of had all of these gifts. But sometimes you have somebody who's super gifted as a linguist translator but they really just need to be on a team with others who are gifted in evangelism and elder qualified pastor church planters. So as long as all of those elements are on the team, that's great. You don't always find that all those gifts in in one person. Yeah, no, that's right. I I don't, I didn't mean to go down that trail. I meant just more like there, there seems to be in a lot of my context, this narrow vision 
where it's it's almost divorced from the local church and the and the, wor- and the worship that goes on there. That said, you, you brought up an interesting question that I think might be a good launching pad. Uh, I mean, I think broadly people know Bible translation, you're translating the Bible into another language. But you mentioned the question of whether Bible translation is fundamentally for the church or for evangelism. So maybe you talk to that question and how you view uh, what that looks like. Sure. And to this, let me just go to the Second London Confession. Uh, do you guys have a preference whether I read from maybe some of your I've actually met folks who don't know about it. Maybe some of your listeners don't know that founders did an, a modern English version. I'm happy to read either one, but the, yeah, the old English says vulgar, vulgar. The, the, the founders, you know, modern English says common languages, but uh, let me just start there. So in chapter one, paragraph eight of the second London confession, which is the same in Westminster, the old Testament was written in Hebrew, the native language of the ancient people of God. The new Testament was written in Greek which at the time it was written, was most widely known to the nations. These testaments were inspired directly by God and by his unique care and providence were kept pure down through the ages. They are therefore true and authoritative. Big issue in the Reformation, obviously. So that in all religious controversies, the church must make their ultimate appeal to them. But it doesn't stop. It then says, all God's people have a right to and claim on the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Not all of God's people know these original languages. So the scriptures are to be translated into the common language of every nation to which they come. In this way, the word of God may dwell richly in all so that they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and the comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So there's this issue of worship and the people of God and a right to the scriptures, a claim upon the scriptures as their authority, of course. Um, But this this issue for me came through reading during the Reformation, um, trying to understand, you know, Second London captures it, Westminster captures it. Even the 39 articles of the Anglican Church have parts about Bible translation. Predating the Anglican was the Irish articles. So there are multiple confessions during the Reformation that explicitly talk about worship in a common language. In various paragraphs, sometimes it's related to the public prayers. Sometimes it's related to overseeing the ordinances. Sometimes it's related very explicitly, like Westminster and Second London, to actual Bible translation for corporate worship. And so I think practically there are a lot of agencies now that really focus on trying to serve the church. Because what's happened is many evangelists have gone all over the globe, preached the gospel, and people are coming to faith, and then those people want scripture. And so now BT agencies are saying, well, we, we want to serve the church wherever it is, and we want to work with the church and help them get scripture. And I think in some ways it's sort of a pragmatic decision. I don't mean that purely negatively, but it's just, wow, there's all these Christians. You know, For example, out of those 7,360 languages, about 1,500 have a New Testament and only 706 have an Old Testament. So clearly half the languages with a new have an old. And so what about all those churches and Christians that have the new but don't have the old? Do we focus on them or do we keep focusing on unreached, unengaged and sort of Bible translation as an evangelistic tool? That's an important question that then takes you down a trail of asking and answering you know, the audience, not only translational decisions, but what kind of footnotes you put in there. Um, to explain or not explain. 
So, yeah, I mean, we can drill down on this more. Um, my, I, I think the Reformation com- confessions capture an issue that, um, you know, obviously my understanding of the Reformation was it was sort of a crisis of authority in terms of is it councils and, and, and bishops and, you know, is it the church or is it scripture? Um, not excluding confessions uh, as representations and explanations of scripture, sort of the implications. But I think it was also an ecclesiological crisis. I mean, you read Manich's, you know, Calvin's Company of Pastors and Brand Luther and some of these books where people were, uh, uh, who wanted to serve as pastors uh, were flocking to Geneva and Wittenberg to be trained in the languages and theology and then going back to serve in churches, it was a, it was a massive church revitalization, you know, happening during the Reformation. So there was this kind of ecclesial crisis. We need to train pastors to serve in churches, and then those pastors, equipped in the languages and theology, were going back and then now translating scripture. And so when you decide to translate scripture for believers versus unbelievers, it, it has definite implications. Hmm. You've already hinted at um, a little bit of this with um, your comments earlier about translating the Bible into Muslim context, but um, what what do you think are some of the most um, challenging aspects of translation today? Um, maybe you could expand on that issue um, in, in the Muslim context, but also any other things that are um, just really challenging for Bible translators, maybe in general and in specific areas. But Sure. A couple quick comments. Uh, there's actually a book in process happening about Muslim idiom translations. It's it's going to be a multi-authorial uh, work, edited volume. Um, uh, what are called Muslim idiom translations, translations that are targeted at either those who are still Muslim uh, or who are Muslim background believers. And so translations that have that as a target audience. Um, There was also a work done that was edited by Ant Greenham. He was one of the editors and I'm blanking on the, uh, it's a bunch of stories and and, uh, anyway, I could bring it up and we could put it in the notes. But um, so in terms of the most needed, I think, honestly, Matthew nine, like the harvest is plenty. The labors are few. I think that is the most critical issue in Bible translation today is just, just that there are not enough people serving in any, in all the roles of Bible translation. So in other words, if God's people don't know that translation's an issue, then how will they pray for it? How will they give towards it? How will they think about giving their lives to it? How will they identify God's grace in other people's lives in their own congregation. Wow, you seem really disciplined and persevering and gifted in this way. How do you identify God's grace in other people's lives to to think about them giving their lives to Bible translation, to pursue years of training? So I think that that's honestly the biggest and most basic hurdle is just God's people knowing about it, praying about it, giving towards it, giving their lives towards it. Um, then you can get into the challenges of actual translation. You know, w- once you get into translation, um, you know, a big challenge is training locals in Greek and Hebrew. I think most Christians probably don't understand the modern translation process. Most translators do not translate from Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. They translate from a translation. So they're starting with French or English or Spanish, what we call languages of wider communication, or often now it's called gateway languages. They're starting. Because many mother tongue translators, that would be people who grow up speaking 
their mother tongue, their first language in the home. They are also bilingual or multilingual. They grew up speaking also French in Cameroon or Hindi and English in India on top of their mother tongue. So mother tongue translators equipping them, um, training them in the languages, in theology, in linguistics, so that they can be really good translators. So the, the normal process goes, start with a language of wider communication like French, translate into the target language, then back translate into French or English so that a translation consultant can read a back translation and then work through with the translation team, whether that back translation matches the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Sometimes you also have a double back translation. So in Bangladesh, they were going from their target language into what we say Bengali or Bangla, and then another back translation into English. So the translation consultant was looking at a translation that went from Bangla to target language, target language back to Bangla, and then Bangla into English. So they're looking at this like three, four time removed translation, trying to then have a conversation. So I think training locals, training uh, uh, pastors and Christian leaders in all the skills needed, what I like to call the Bible translation triad. You need theology because translation requires interpretation. Even if you're in the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, it requires that you interpret the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and make decisions. And if you land on one, you footnote the other maybe, or, you know, certain certain organizations don't, don't want to do that. But um, that, I think that's the biggest hurdle is, is, sorry, the BT triad, theology, linguistics, and then exegesis. You, you need the biblical languages and the ability to, to interpret the text exegetically and then theologically, and then your linguistics and translation studies. So that, that's what I like to call the Bible translation triad. You need those three areas of education, not every individual, but the team needs people that can do that. You know, people don't realize ESV had like over 50 scholars, um, I think a hundred scholars on the study Bible. You know, you, these are teams overseas of three, four, five people, two people, you know? So I think those are the biggest hurdles, just educating the church to be praying, giving, sending, training, going, and then, then, okay, who's going to go? What kind of, what are they going to be involved in? Uh, it's not just field translation anymore in terms of learning the language, documenting it in writing, creating an orthography, creating a dictionary. That is still needed. We have BTF partners that do that. But we also need those who will go and teach Hebrew and Greek in a local seminary to the mother tongue translators and teach theology and teach linguistics. And in other words, what happens after Bible translation? That's the big question. After Bible translation, well, Creeds, confessions, good theological resources, not just being translated from other languages, but being written by the locals. So uh, equipping and training the local pastors and Christian leaders for everything. I mean, the Psalter, the songbook, Christians gathered to back to Jordan's earlier question in terms of if the church is the intended audience. And I would say even more than just the individual Christian at home, reading their Bible by themselves. I know that's kind of like evangelical height of godliness is the individual Christian by themselves in their Bible time. But I mean, and that's great, you know, when you can do that, but no, God has always provided for his people in the corporate gathering where his word is read aloud. It's commanded. First Timothy 4, 13 preached second Timothy four prayed sung and seen in the ordinances. And so scripture use is a big deal now, thankfully in the Bible translation community. Yeah. And just for those listening, 
um, you know, I'm on the website here at, at BibleTranslationFellowship.org. There, there is a tab on here, ways to help, and there's um, there's actually a prayer list right on here, a bulleted list that you could use um, to pray for Bible translations. And there's also um, a place for you to donate if you feel led to do that. But I know I just, um, for some reason, well, not for some reason, <laughs> we talk about my, this is kind of an inside joke, but we talk about my grandma a lot on this podcast because she's like our most <laughs> faithful listener, but she's also, um, she's really into missions and uh, she's um, deeply committed to prayer. So I think of someone like her, she's, I know she's asking like, what are specific things that I can be praying for? And uh, there's a list there on the websites for those who are interested in checking that out. I would love to send your grandmother a t-shirt if she'll wear it. And, I'm sure she uh, would. <laughs> and, 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 and I think it's a sweet design. So we've taken the word translate and written it vertically. And then all the horizontal words kind of in a crossword puzzle what we've done is tried to capture what a church is, a church, and then what the church does with scripture. So a church is a group of believers who covenant together to gather under the ministry of the word. And the ref, the reformers would say, wherever you find the, the, the right preaching of the word and the practice of the ordinances, of course, you could add church discipline, but that's implicit in the right practice of the ordinances. So a church is a group of believers who covenant to, to gather together, you know, Hebrews 10, and then what do they do with the word? Well, they read it, preach it, pray it, have fellowship or partnership in the word together, which partnership also includes missions. It's financial partnership. Um, and then they, they, they sing the word and then they participate in baptism and the Lord's table. And so we've put all that on a T-shirt and we'd love to send your grandmother one of those. It's a way that people cannot. It's not about promoting BTF. It's, a, it's about promoting Bible translation as integrated with the mission yeah. of the church. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure she'd love that. Yeah. <laughs> so let me think here. At, when, when it comes to the confession, we, we talked about that, I guess, Westminster, Second London, I mean, pretty much identical. Um, chapter one, section eight. Where should this and does this show up in the life and ministry commitments of the local church? So you can be super practical as you know, you've talked about how they're publicly praying for it in church. Um, you talked about casting vision type of stuff. What does that look like um, really on the ground? So let's just take just your own local church as an example that you're at right now or something. Say, what do they do on a regular basis to promote this, to train, to affirm, like you mentioned? What does that look yeah, like? Great for question. One of our advisory board members is Steve Meister. He's a pastor at our church, Emmanuel Baptist in Sacramento. And when he was preaching through Minor Prophets, um, he would just make sermon applications about praying, about giving, about going, about Bible, basically the primacy of scripture in everything the church is called to. So that's one easy way. Um, we, at our church, we follow a, 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 you know, a very common order of worship in terms of prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, uh, assurances of pardon, scripture readings for call to worship. And so during those different prayers, especially the pastoral prayer of, of thanksgiving and supplication, praying for languages, praying, they pray for BT, for Bible translation fellowship and for us, but praying for individuals and organizations and languages. Um, you know, we hand out little bookmarks, you know, to, to, for people to stick in their Bibles. We're happy to send those to folks that, that are interested so that, um, you know, people can, when they're reading scripture, can be praying for translation projects and people. The Bible Translation Network that we're starting, that's a way. It's, it's still in its infancy, but what we hope it to be is sort of like a LinkedIn where 
translation teams will put their the profile of the people and sort of the goals of the project. So then anyone can go on there and look for those projects that are happening and pray for them, even support them, know exactly who's who's on the translation team and what their philosophy of translation is and how it's integrated or not with church planting and theological education. So there's there's some of those practical things. I think, you know, last last year, uh, our church decided to preach through Acts. And so then we just kept highlighting the primacy of the written word in evangelism and, and discipleship and church planting and church strengthening. So I think those are some some practical ways. People can also just sign up on our newsletter and then we can try to provide some of those reminders for them. We try to just do it quarterly. So I get an I get a monthly update from progress.bible on all the Bible translation stats. And then I can sort of condense that and send it out to pastors. So they know like, wow, great. Praise God. This month, we went from 705 to 706 languages that have a full Bible. So a lot of, a lot of it's just very practical in those ways. And then I want to finish with one really important one, especially for pastors. And it's rethinking your missions philosophy. You know, what, what is missions? And what is the mission of the church? And if you land where I think scripture lands in terms of church planting, church strengthening, then write Bible translation into that. So even if you're really passionate about sending guys out to serve in, in theological academic ministries, great. But, but chances are they're going to land somewhere overseas where, ter- whether it's church planting or church strengthening and theological education, they're going to land somewhere where either a first translation needs to be done or a revision or second translation needs to be done. I mean, this is being talked about for French, Arabic, you know, Russian, German. I mean, you just go down the list of languages that have sort of been crossed off, like, oh, we did those. But the church is now coming back saying, well, we, we want a different kind of translation than what we were given. You know, um, Bible studies came in, Bible translation agencies came in, maybe worked more or less with the locals. But at some point, I mean, look at English. The last time I looked... I know Wikipedia is not the authoritative source, but the last time I looked at Wikipedia, there was over 450 English versions of the Bible. And so as the church grows, like there's a need for different kinds of translations because of philosophy or even just adding footnotes and study Bibles and supplementary helps. So I think those are some practical ways. I would like to encourage people to check out ProPempo. David Mead is on our board at, at BTF. But propempo, the word for send, just P-R-O-P-E-M-P-O. And David Mead serves as a missions pastor, but he also will walk with pastors through helping them write a new missions philosophy. And so he'll spend a couple of days with the pastors thinking through missions and then writing a handbook, writing a philosophy, defining missions, defining mission of the church. You know, you can have different tiers of funding and strategies for missions you might think we really want to focus on a geography or a people group or a language group or the 1040 window or whatever your strategy is, but but be thinking about how Bible translation fits into that. You mentioned earlier that um, missionary biographies kind of played a role in, you know, um, getting you really involved in Bible translation. Um, I was curious, you know, maybe you could you could give us some of your favorites, some books that you think um, the listeners could read that might serve as a, a spark, um, you know, to, to get folks more into this. And maybe also just some other resources more specifically on Bible translation um, that you think might be helpful. Yeah, great question. In fact, this is part of what our website's trying to accomplish in terms of that advocacy. So if you go to BibleTranslationFellowship.org, there's a resources tab and 
you know, how do I become a Bible translator? What do I get training? What are good resources? And then we have a reading list. So some of those biographies for me, William Carey by S. Pierce Carey was really helpful. I gave the background in history. Uh, William Tyndale by David Danielle. Uh, the Life and Letters of Henry Martin by John Sargent. Um, Courtney Anderson's To the Golden Shore about the Judsons. Um, Here I Stand, Life of Martin Luther by Bainton. Uh, I really liked Brand Luther. I mean, that gets in by Andrew Pedigree. It gets into some other issues in terms of the whole book industry, but um, as well as uh, John Payton's Missionary to the New Hebrides, the Banner volume. Um, you know, John Piper has all these sort of smaller sermons that are like biographical. They've now condensed those all. It used to be the Swans are not silent. Now it's all in one volume called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. It's not all in Bible translation, but there are some translators in there. Um, and sort of not a biography, but one book that I found really helpful. Philip Noss is the editor of A History of Bible Translation. And I've read that entire volume. Great. It just walks through sort of a historical, uh, not sort of, it is a historical overview kind of through centuries of Bible translation by many different authors. And uh, there's a number of other books. Um, Bill Barrick uh, uh, is on our board. Uh, he wrote a book just in the last couple of years called Understanding Bible Translation. That's a really good place to start, even for lay people that just want to better understand the complexities and what's involved. I've had numerous lay people, just members of our church, read that and say that was so helpful and I could understand it. And it really helps me pray better and know about this work and what the needs are. And that's, again, William Barrick, Understanding Bible Translation. Has there always been, you're mentioning all these biographies of different people, I mean, from Luther to to people who are more recent. Has there always been a felt need among the church to truly translate the Bible into other languages and make this a priority? Um, I mean, is this something as like, you know, it kind of fell out at a period of time and then that's part of what the Reformation is, is a recovery of, you know, desire and interest in this. Is that a fair description of how the trajectory might have gone a little bit? Yeah, I certainly think you have ebbs and flows in, in, throughout church history because of all sorts of providences, right? I mean, in the midst of a pandemic and, and wars and libraries being burned down, I mean, you have all sorts of things that influence whether, whether the work was happening. Um, certainly the Reformation, and then again during William Carey's time in terms of him sort of helping to catalyze uh, with Andrew Fuller, you know, a whole network of, of churches that were going to send and then kept sending, um, which was a very unique period in history in, in terms of Brit Britain's involvement in the world and then the ability to, for people to go and be involved in missions and Bible translation. Um, although because of business and the East India Trading Company, William Carey actually ended up getting on a Dutch ship, not a British, British one, to go to India. And so, um, yeah, I think... There have been those ebbs and flows. I think Noss's book, A History of Bible Translation, it's a big volume, but it's it's uh, helpful. I think the Reformation is at least, I mean, I would start in Scripture and look at Acts 2 and the Pentecost. Like the Spirit of God has always wanted um, God's Word revelation and act revelation to be known in the common language of the people that God is revealing himself to. So it was in Hebrew to the people of old and Aramaic and then Greek as the common language to uh, the period from from Christ and the apostles. So you see the, the the revelation of God and Pentecost being translated, I would say, into languages, human languages, is what was happening at Pentecost. 
And then you see fast forward to Revelation that the the the, the final church of God is is of every tribe and language and people and nation. And I don't think that means at one point in history, like whatever languages exist today, as opposed to, I mean, languages are dying and new languages are starting again. I mean, that happens, right? So yeah, I do think there's some ebbs and flows. And I think Jordan, you're right that the Reformation was, it wasn't like a bunch of people got around and said, we really need to focus on Bible translation. Again, they actually said, we need to supply pastors to churches and the, and the ministry of the word. I mean, think about all the roles in Ephesians 4 in terms of apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers. Those are all word ministers. Whether it's at the very front edge of the spear in evangelism and, and the apostles and prophets who are speaking the, the, the revelation of God, and then it's being documented in writing. So then the, the next generation, non-apostolic, but pastors and, and elders are ministering the word. So the word is 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 part and parcel of that whole, but I think, you know, yes, at different times. And I think the reformation, because it was sort of this crisis of training ministers of the word. Also, you saw a huge influx in um, translation into other languages. Yeah. I think a, a good closing potential question. And is just thinking through translation philosophy a little bit. I know that's, I mean, I don't want to get all in the weeds because we could probably spend two hours talking about translation philosophy, but maybe just for the person who's curious just about what this might look like, is there one translation philosophy that you, you feel like you have to follow? Cause I mean, I look at like the confession and, and it's just brought like, Hey, you, you want to make this known in another tongue. And there's no like stand on it. it has to be literal. It has to be paraphrased because it seems to be when you talk Bible translation, there's a lot of debates about what the best way to do this is. So from your perspective, is there a a better way to think about that? Uh, maybe just a better way to think about the debate in general. As You seem to be talking about how there are these other countries, other languages who need more translations as if it's helpful to have various flavors to help different groups of people think through it and use it in different contexts. So maybe talk to that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we could do an entire couple episodes just on that, but I think a lot of the debate about English Bible translation is sometimes it's fine and, and it's good to have. I mean, we have hundreds of them. So it's an important discussion, but not every language in the world is like English. English is this conglomeration of French and Germanic and all sorts of, you know, different influences all the way back to Greek and, you know, others. So a lot of the debate in terms of formal, functional, dynamic, literal about English translation doesn't, for lack of better words, translate well into this conversation with all these other languages around the world. And so I, you know, there are, where do you start? Um, I think you need to start with a theology and philosophy of language and interpretation and translation. So as a linguist, there's this whole conversation about philosophy of translation, literal, formal, functional, every word, okay, but not every word. I mean, you start getting into even the most literal English translations. They don't translate every single iota. And jo- I mean, what do you mean by literal? Like at some point you're talking about a transliteration of sounds 
if you want hyper literal and, and words that are out of order that the English reader couldn't even make sense if it was an interlinear. So, you know, yes, there's a spectrum if you want to put it like that, but there's different ways to approach that whole conversation. And I think whereas, whereas there has been a lot of conversation about philosophy of translation, what I would like to encourage people to think and pray and work towards, um, and this is what I'm ending up doing my PhD on, is a theology of Bible translation. Now, I think Vern Poitras at Westminster uh, has already laid the groundwork for a theology of language and interpretation. And then I'm hoping to build on that in terms of theology of Bible translation. So where I would leave that is to just say what we've been talking about in terms of if so, so whereas some agencies would say the, the intended audience of a first translation is first generation on, you know, it's unbelievers. And then it's the first generation of hope. Hopefully these people come to faith. And then even more specifically, some would say it's women and young children. It's the people who often don't get education. So that that's who the intended audience is. So, you know, Okay, that that leads you down a road road of making a number of decisions. And I would just want to leave people with thinking about if you have a theology of language and a theology of Bible translation, and if the church is the intended audience, and more particularly the gathered church, then you start thinking about, okay, well, who are the first users of this? Well, the, the ones who are charged with the, the pastors and elders and, and, and service leaders who are charged with ministering that word. And then, of course, it happens privately. The people come, hear the word, memorize it, sing it, and then they go share it with, with, with others and evangelize. So both in terms of written translation being an emphasis, not just oral, but written translation, which then can be produced in audio versions. Um, I think that that's where I would want to start in terms of developing a, a theology of Bible translation uh, with, with the church at the center. Yeah, that sounds really neat. Um, I, I imagine a lot of our listeners would probably be interested in reading that dissertation once it's finished, uh, however long that may take you, um, given your other commitments. But I think this has been a great conversation. And I absolutely encourage all of our listeners to check out your resources again. We've talked about it, Bible Translation Fellowship, and all the stuff that you guys are doing for local churches, for pastors, and for all that's going on there. I think your ministry is tremendous. And one of those unique that it is actually interested in confessional theology. It is centered around the ordinary means of grace and the centrality of the local church. I mean, for a parachurch organization, I think this is just fantastic. So again, for all those who are listening, go check them out and go support them as you can, as the Lord leads you. And for everybody who's been listening, uh, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.